Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. And joining me on today's show on what is a warm summer morning here in the capital is Brian Dow. Brian is the chief executive of a major UK charity, Mental Health UK. He is also the deputy CEO of fellow mental health charity Rethink Mental Illness. Uh, Brian, welcome and thank you for joining us on the show. Lovely, lovely to speak to you, Scott, and it's my pleasure. Pleasure for us welcoming you on as well, Brian. Certainly is a lovely day for it. First full day of summer, I suppose. Um, but we are still, of course, living under social restrictions in one way, shape or form. And I think that's the elephant in the room that we need to address sort of first and foremost here. We are still somewhat within the grip of the global COVID-19 pandemic, even though we're moving out of lockdown slowly. We have been in the grip of this situation now for the best part of the last 14 months. So considering your work at two major mental health charities. How has all of that been affected by this whole situation? It, it's been an extraordinary 14, 15 months for everyone. I don't think anyone in any part of the, the, the world is unaffected by it. Um, the, the way that I try and describe it is that I, I think it's been, of course, a physical health pandemic because you know the virus poses huge threats to life and has made many, many millions of people unwell. But it's also a mental health uh, epidemic because I think the kind of recognition that when you're living in a period of uh, you know, profound isolation, fear, of course, over contracting the, the disease, but also worries about your um, relationships, about your loved ones, about your job, your financial security, your home, all of these things combine, I think, and have created a, a really difficult time for period. And I suppose if I was kind of looking at the positives of all of that, Scott, I would say that it has at least kind of taught us to be more literate on the subject. So you hear more people talking. And I think this is true for leaders, but I think it's also true for, for colleagues across organisations, small and large, about the importance of preserving and protecting our mental health. And I, I hope that if one good thing comes from this pandemic is that we learn that actually our physical and our mental health are just as important as employees, as, as, as friends and as family. And, and that, I suppose, in the long term might be one of the upsides from the pandemic. I think you're very, very right. Even though it has brought on a significant mental health crisis in a way, we are talking a lot more openly about mental health. It's amplified the issue and it's also got employers thinking about it a lot more as well. And that's incredibly important when it comes to sort of working practices, the work-life balance. And I suppose in a way as well, it's taken an awful lot from business leaders to sort of keep tabs on mental health and well-being when they've been operating under a remote work framework because when you're sort of having all of your contact over mechanisms like zoom and microsoft teams i suppose spotting certain sort of social cues if you will that indicate someone struggling can be maybe a little bit more difficult so leaders in general have had to be very on the ball with that over the last year or so haven't they they have and 
we've all had to try to find a, a different vocabulary, haven't we, about how we relate to one another. Um, I mean, the first thing that I um, really noticed, as I'm sure everyone else did, is we were suddenly having, having to, if you like, drop some of the professional facade that we bring into the workplace. I mean, Zoom was taking us into one another's living rooms if, if we were lucky enough to be, you know, in a kind of stable home with, with space, or in some cases, people's bedrooms. And, um, you know, that kind of, that, if you like, that wall of privacy was suddenly thrown down. And I think that was, that, that's been difficult to adjust to. Again, I think that the, the positive of that is um, that we've all got to know each other in some senses in a deeper kind of way. But I think you're right on that, that, that kind of notion of, recognizing how people are doing and understanding those cues has been hugely challenging, not least because I think that the pandemic has affected everybody so differently. And, you know, the kind of reality, I think, that some people um, look like they're coping pretty well, but underneath the surface are actually really struggling. It's difficult for leaders to to get to. And of course, uh, you know, leaders are human beings. Um, When you're leading an organization, during a period of existential danger to your organization, you have to be incredibly resilient. And mm. if you get none of the, if you like, social benefits of being in a room, being friendly with people, and I think that's been hard for leaders as well. So I suppose my, my hope, again, is that we all kind of learn a degree of kindness and consideration to one another that could be missing from time to time in, in the, the modern workforce. Yeah, I think that's a very important point that leaders also have to consider not just everyone else's well-being, but also their own as well. And you sort of explained it quite well there that when leaders sort of are facing a situation where their organisation is in existential danger, um, it's easy to get sucked into a survival mode make sure that you're constantly looking out for everybody else, that you sort of neglect your own mental health and well-being in the process. And I think it is important, therefore, for people in leadership roles to be able to have the opportunity to take a step back when they need to and also recharge the batteries in the very same way. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think one of the um, kind of flip sides of, of being so available to one another, particularly in that first six months where everything felt you know, very threatening, I suppose, is it's pretty easy to call on a colleague to jump on a call at a second's notice. You know, it's not, not kind of the excuse of transport or kind of getting across across the city or, or, or the country. Um, and I think that kind of sense of being available all the time um, comes with, with a quite a big risk because you feel like you should be available. And all the important things that keep those batteries recharged, like going, you know, being outside, getting a bit of distance from, from meetings, um, sleep, all of those things, I think it was pretty hard for people to find the space for those, not, not just physically, but like intellectually. Um, it, it was also a, a bit of a moral challenge, I think. People felt they had to be there the whole time. Um, and I think one of the lessons that I learned six or seven months in is if I didn't take the space just to get outside, maybe to have a, a kind of walking meeting or, or, you know, just generally break away from work, then actually the quality of your decisions begins to degrade because everybody only has so much capacity to keep coming back to the same challenging issues. So, so I think you're absolutely right, Scott. Making time to have the space, I think, is one of the most, well, it's counterintuitive, but it's one of the most important principles, particularly during the pandemic, um, of, of leadership. 
And I think in considering mental health throughout this pandemic as well, what has become clear is that flexible working practices are probably going to be here to stay in the long run, aren't they? Whether that be sort of a permanent approach taken by an organisation or part of a hybridised approach where you're maybe working two to three days from home and then sort of commuting in another couple of days to work in that office environment and enjoy that social interaction. Because even though, of course, working from home has its benefits, it isn't a one-size-fits-all approach, is it? And I think we have taken that social interaction with colleagues a little bit for granted pre-pandemic, and we've realised how much we do need that as well. Exactly. I think you're, you're spot on on both sides of the equation. You know, I, I like everybody else with occasionally jokes, you know, say to the colleague, well, you're working from, and then put inverted commas around the word home, you know, because we all sort of, you know, t- took it slightly light-hearted that people might be, squeezing in a bit of TV watching or doing the gardening. I mean, you know, up to a point we all ought to be a bit relaxed about that. But I think the truth is that working from home doesn't need those quotation marks around it. It does work and people have really kind of um, stretched themselves to be there for their organisation. And I've found that to be the case in, in, you know, a huge number of large and small organisations that I've spoken to. But, but, but you're absolutely correct on the other side of the balance sheet we do need human interaction. You know, we are social creatures and I think nothing can quite replace whether you're, you know, a, an incredibly extroverted person or, or you're kind of on the, you know, much more introverted um, side of things. I think nonetheless, valued human relationships where you just get a bit of time and space to be with each other and to build that confidence about being a social uh, creature, I think is really important. And, and the kind of short, not small number of contact that I've had with people in the last few weeks is some of the restrictions have begun to ease. Mm. It's just felt absolutely fantastic sitting in a room with people talking. I mean, it takes a bit of time to get used to it again, frankly, but it just felt so human and so warm to be able to do that. So I think that hybrid model is something that is part of the new social contract for the way that uh, employers work with employees into the future. And so we'd all better, you know, kind of get used to that. And of course, we've seen, as we've said over the last few weeks and months, restrictions starting to ease finally and those freedoms that we've longed for starting to come back. But a lot has been talked about what the legacy of COVID is likely to be for mental health and well-being, and that is the effect of intermittent lockdowns remaining for quite some time. People perhaps being anxious to sort of go back to the old ways of not mask wearing and going within two metres of each other because of the angst of picking up the uh, the virus still. So I think there is still a lot that we're going to have to really sort of consider and take to heart moving forward with regard to mental health because that isn't an issue that's just going to vanish as freedoms come back in one go, is it? No, I, I think we're all gradually getting used to the, the notion that you know we'll have to live with COVID for quite some time, I mean, perhaps even on a semi-permanent basis. Now, the hope is that it becomes a bit like flu. It's a very manageable condition and we don't really have to um, disrupt our lives in any meaningful way. But I think I think that notion of uncertainty, I think if we, you wind the, wind the clock back a few months when we were talking about restrictions being over, it was easy to fall into that assumption that what that meant is that on you know, day one uh, of normality, if you like, normality is normality, by which I mean that it will all go back to being kind of clear and safe. And I think the reality is actually it will have to come out of this pretty gradually and get used to doing some of the things that were, were normal in the past. So, and I think it's, it's possible that what will begin to emerge is a kind of 
a bit of a schism where some people will think, well, look, it's all bangs now. You, you need to just get on with it. Um, whereas other people will find it a bit more difficult to do that. So again, I hope that we don't rush as, as, as friends and colleagues to judge people as, as they go at it in, in their own pace. And, in, and employers, I think, need to recognise too that actually they will need to be quite adaptive um, and that their workforce itself is quite diverse in terms of the confidence and kind of capability to come back to normal. Yes, exactly. And with that sort of in mind over the course of the next sort of 12 months, as we begin to adjust to that post-COVID world, do you see your mental health charities having to do a great deal more work in helping support well-being? Yes, I mean, I think so. We It, it was it was a bit of a perfect storm for us, as you can imagine, because mm. um, suddenly uh, the uh, kind of need to draw on the support that we provide for, for organisations and for um, individuals across the country uh, shot up at a time when the health system itself wasn't really able to, to kind of meet that demand because, of course, professionals were being deployed to, to, to manage the, the, the pandemic. I, th- I think, I mean, some of that has settled down a bit, thankfully. But, but I think two things have happened. The first is, um, you know, happily, a, a recognition that the voluntary sector plays a really important role in the health ecosystem, not just not necessarily providing clinical care for, for people, but actually supporting people with a range of different things that affect their mental health. And then I suppose secondly, for us as an organisation, the um, the number of the number of big and large companies who are coming to us and saying, you know, look, we recognise actually we've not necessarily dealt with the issue of mental health um, very well. We want to provide training and support for managers. We want to know how to create a mentally healthy workplace. Um, can you give us a bit of support to do that? And of course, that's something that we're really happy and keen to do because I think the more that we can make sure that the kind of modern employee has support for their mental health as much as for their physical health, even if it's only the bottom line you care about, I think I think we'll all kind of recognise that that's the best way to make sure that somebody is efficient, effective, confident, happy, and performing well at work. So I, th- I think I see the future as being a period where there's, there's more demand for what we do, and we just want to make sure that we meet that challenge. Yeah, certainly going to be an interesting time on the mental health and well-being front over the uh, the coming weeks and months for sure. And it is something that we are going to keep a very, very close eye on as well. And I think as well, um, as we start to understand exactly what sort of shape it's taking, Brian, moving forward out of COVID, I think it would be wonderful to actually catch up in the coming months and have you back on the show with us because it's been a real eye-opener just hearing a little bit of insight from yourself and I think we need to obviously just catch up and review exactly how things are starting to change as we adjust to life after the pandemic as well. Yeah, I, I, I'd be honest, Scott, and you know, I, th- I think we'll we'll all probably discover things that we, we didn't expect to be. But but again, just to go back right to the start, mm. I think if 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 we if you've gone through an experience like this in the pandemic. And it's done nothing to change your mindset. Well, <laughs> frankly, nothing ever will because it's been such, uh, you know, a, a, a systemic and totemic event in all of our lives. Um, and I do think, in the end, we probably need a different social contract around the issue of mental health and the way that, you know, as employers, um, as businesses, as government, um, as a health system, as individuals, friends, the, the, the way that we think and behave for our mental health. 
um, will be changed by this pandemic in ways that we never that never would have done, but through anything else. So, yeah, I, th- I think there's probably for lots of surprises. I hope there are as many of them which are good um, as, as bad, and and I feel pretty confident, having spoken to hundreds of people over the last month or so, that that will be the case. Yes, let's certainly hope so. Uh, Brian, we are just about out of time on the show today, but I have to say it's been a real pleasure welcoming you onto the uh, the programme and, as I said, a real eye-opener for me. And again, it would be a real honour to welcome you back on at some point in the uh, the next few months just to catch up on how things are coming along. Thanks, guys. It's my pleasure. And do also continue to take care and stay safe yourself with everything that is still going on because even though better times are coming, we're certainly not quite out of the woods with this yet. So let's just keep our fingers crossed that everything's going to go ahead as planned now. Yeah, and the same to yourself, Scott. And I would also extend that message to all of our listeners tuning in as well. Do please continue to look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it makes such a key difference in saving lives. Um, It was a pleasure today to welcome Brian Dow, Chief Executive of Mental Health UK, onto the programme. And coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by our incumbent chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett, who will be discussing his take on the events of the last 14 or so months and his hopes for the week ahead uh, that was of course coming up next Lord Blunkett welcome thank you very much it's very good to be with you um, well of course uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19 uh, which uh, we must touch on um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for a British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm-hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, 
both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on 
issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead Mm. or people being told that they shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? 
I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm-hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings. Uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm-hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding my only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. But it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business 
continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Um, These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack. Uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, 
the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? 
Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate 
rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.